Jesus, we, Jesus, we long for your presence to be among us this morning. Emmanuel, God with us. And it is in your name that we pray. Amen. Please be seated. So I'm going to read an excerpt from a speech, and I want you to try and guess who it is that gave it. America, this is our moment. This is our time. The journey will be difficult. The road will be long. I face this challenge with profound humility and knowledge of my own limitations. But I face it with limitless faith in the capacity of the American people. Because if we are willing to work for it and fight for it and believe in it, then I am absolutely certain that generations from now we will be able to look back and tell our children that this was the moment when we began to provide care for the sick and good jobs to the jobless. This was the moment when the rise of the oceans began to slow and our planet began to heal. This was the moment when we ended a war and secured our nation and restored our image as the last best hope on earth. This was the moment, this was the time when we came together to remake this great nation so that it may always reflect our very best selves and our highest ideals. Thank you, God bless you, and may God bless the United States of America. Any? <laughs> Someone's like, yay. Um, does anybody know who that was? It was Barack Obama in 2008. At, his, um, at the night of the election. So in fall of 2008, hope was in the air, if you may remember. Um, obviously not everyone felt that way, but for many, hope was in the air. And it was actually fascinating to see even the most cynical and jaded, even those on the other side of the, the political aisle, being stirred by these words and feeling like maybe it was true that the things we long to see could happen if we, like he said, just worked for it, fought for it, and believed in it. And maybe Barack Obama would be the one, capital T, capital O, and apparently that's what his staff would call him behind closed doors, that he would be the one who could finally transcend those old political divisions and bitterness and bring hope and healing and restoration to our deeply divided nation and troubled world. Well, fast forward just two years later. I don't know if you remember, but it seemed like every single week the New York Times editorial board was just hammering Obama. And there was one columnist who wrote, Mr. Obama almost seems as if he's trying systematically to disappoint his once fervent supporters to convince the people who put him where he is that they made an embarrassing mistake. You know, it's like, ouch, that hurts. And my point in bringing all this up is not actually about Obama, because no leader can avoid disappointing their followers. In fact, it's often the people who are criticizing you the most that aren't the ones who oppose you. It's the ones who believe in you the most. And the, 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 the truth is that regardless of whether our expectations of our leaders are realistic or not, or fair or not, we're often disappointed by our leaders because underneath it all, we hope for so much. 
And we hope for peace and for the ending of violence, for solutions to poverty, both global and domestic, our failing school systems, global warming, and homelessness, just to name a few. And we hope for someone who can finally get us out of this mess that we're in and call forth, as Obama said, our best selves and our highest ideals. There's, that, there's this old documentary called Waiting for Superman back in the day, and it's like we are waiting for Superman to come and to save us. So this is not a new phenomenon in the course of human history. The people of Israel were also waiting for their Superman, too, their Messiah. A Messiah is um, simply shorthand for the king. It means the anointed one. And in that sense, every single king, since King Saul, had been the Messiah. And for the people of Israel, the Messiah was central to fulfilling God's purpose for them as a nation. And yet generation after generation after generation, Israel's kings proved to be a big disappointment to them. And aside from that occasional bright spot, their reigns were marked by pride, foolishness, idolatry, faithlessness that had severe consequences for the people. We're talking about war, destruction, the threat of captivity and exile with no end in sight. At the time when Isaiah wrote these words, they were fearful and weary. They were despairing. Maybe they were even kind of cynical and jaded about their kings. Does that sound familiar to you? And then he comes to them with this word um, that Jennifer uh, wrote, read for us where it says in chapter 11, a shoot shall come out from the stump of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The spirit of the Lord shall rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. And what this verse does is that it envisions the house of Jesse like this tree that has just been cut down. And the kings of Israel had proven themselves to be incapable of fulfilling God's good purpose for which they had been anointed. And they were like this dead, withered, dried up stump with no hope of any new life. And then imagine this green little shoot just growing up out of that dead stump, a sign of new life and vitality. I love that picture because it's a picture of hope in the midst of hopelessness, that God had not given up on his people and that he was going to send them another Messiah, the true anointed, the true anointed one who would lead them. And Isaiah said that this king would rule with a different kind of a spirit. He says he would have wisdom and understanding. It's the same word, if you remember the story of King Solomon in 1 Kings 3, where the Lord told him to ask for whatever he wanted. And instead of asking for riches or for power or military might, Solomon asked the Lord, give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people, to distinguish between right and wrong. It's the same words, wisdom and understanding. And one person describes this as the power to see to the heart of the issues. And imagine how different it would be if our political leaders had that kind of heart where they were motivated because they wanted to govern their people well and discern well. He shall not judge by what his eyes see and decide by what his ears hear, but with righteousness 
He shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. So I read this story about a young man from the Bronx um, named Alan Newman, who worked for a telephone company and he lived in a public housing project with his brothers and sisters. And in 1984, Alan was wrongfully convicted of rape, robbery, and assault. He wasn't even there. He was in Brooklyn watching Ghostbusters. The victim and the owner of the bodega close to where the attack happened, they picked him out of a police lineup. And he had, and again, like he hadn't even been there, and yet he was sentenced to 30 years in prison. And over the years, he requested multiple times uh, for DNA testing, only to be told that the evidence could not be found. He spent 22 years in prison until the Innocence Project, uh, which is an organization that seeks to exonerate prisoners through DNA evidence. They got wind of his case, and they found the necessary evidence, which was exactly in the bin where everything needed to exonerate him had been all along those 22 years. And Alan Newton spent half of his life in prison because he was a young black man, misidentified by witnesses, and just happened to live a mile away from the bodega. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. You know, injustice is the abuse of power by those who have it. And they take from others what God has given to them. And in this world of imbalanced scales, Isaiah says that this king will be a different kind of king who decides with equity and fairness on behalf of the poor and the oppressed. And he says in the end of this passage, the wolf shall live with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the kid, the calf and the lion, the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the asp, and the weaned child shall put its hand in the adder's den. They will not hurt or destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. What Isaiah is doing is he's, he's, he's describing this picture of Eden before the fall. And it's this picture of creation that's put back into joint after being broken and misaligned for so long. So predator and prey lie down together in safety. And under this king's reign, there's such security that even a child can exercise dominion and authority over creation. I mean, for every parent um, who is brought or is bringing a child into the world like ours or into a world like ours, you feel that, that sense of fierce protectiveness over your child, right? Your instinct is to protect your child from harm, whether physical or otherwise. You know, no person that loves their child would encourage them to play with a wild wolf, you know, or play near the, the hole of a, of a snake. And the point of this passage is not that children should play with snakes, you know, but rather it's a, almost a sense of wonder that this king, and because of this king, the curse of the fall with all of its predatory dangers and ancient hostilities and crippling fearfulness that accompanies it has been removed. And the reason for this 
is that the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord. And that, that word knowledge, it's not just this abstract intellectual kind of a knowledge, but it's, it's better translated, the earth will be full of knowing the Lord. And we know that God is everywhere present, but now everywhere will know God and enjoy God to its fullest capacity. And so as we think about these just prophetic images of this king that Isaiah is describing to us, um, I, want to, I want us to actually enter into prayer. So I'm going to invite you now to bow your heads. And as you do, as we bow our heads, I just want you to imagine for a moment, what would it look like for the earth to be full of knowing the Lord as the waters cover the sea? Especially as we think of all the injustice and hostility and violence and woundedness of our broken world. You know, I dare you to imagine it and for your heart not to cry that Advent prayer, come, Lord Jesus. I think of my father's family, you know, living in North Korea still, with millions of people suffering under that cruel regime and imagine what it would be like for North Korea to be full of knowing the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And we cry out, come, Lord Jesus. And we think of the aftermath of suicide bombings across the Middle East that don't even make it to the front page anymore. And of people like the journalist in Baghdad you know, who once wrote about how he tried to see what was happening after a bombing, and the policeman who asked him angrily, what do you want to see? The world inside is on fire, and people are being cut to pieces. What would it look like for these places in our world where violence is a daily reality to be full of knowing the Lord as the waters cover the sea? And we cry out, come, Lord Jesus. We could go on and on, drawing that circle, just bring those images into your mind, you know, closer to our country, in Pensacola, Florida, you know, where there was yet another, um, yet another shooting, gun violence, our own city, our community, our family. And the point is not to live in, in an escapist dream where we hide our heads in the sand wringing our hands until Jesus comes back, but rather to say, Jesus, you are the light of the world. You are the king of the earth. And every human leader, no matter how great or powerful or brilliant, will always pale in comparison to your surpassing greatness. And God, we rejoice that you have come, and we long for you to come again. And we will live our lives in light of your two advents with hope and courage and love, working for your peace and justice until the earth is full of knowing you because you reign over all. And so we gather up these places in our hearts, O oh God, whether it's across the globe, in our own country, in our own families, in our friendships, our marriages, with our children. And we close, God, with the words of that great Advent hymn, Come, thou long-expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins release us. 
let us find our rest in thee. Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth thou art, dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. Amen.